Simply Stogies is a passion project that is fan-funded. If you enjoy the content Simply Stogies brings to you and would like to see more and different kinds of content, a website, more on-location podcasts with blenders, manufacturers, or retailers, or video reviews, please consider supporting Simply Stogies on Patreon at patreon.com slash simplystogies. Supporting Simply Stogies can get you a ton of perks, including instant access to bonus material, access to Simply Stogies Discord, including a Patreon-only channel, shoutouts on the show and social media, a monthly virtual herf with myself and other supporters, the ability to suggest cigar reviews, cool swag, or the opportunity to do a cigar review on Simply Stogies Podcast. Thank you for your consideration and your generosity. Now, on to Simply Stogies. You're listening to Simply Stogies, a monthly podcast dedicated to the cigar enthusiast. Light up a stogie, sit back and relax while James brings you along on his journey as a new cigar smoker. Simply Stogies will review cigars, discuss topics that cigar aficionados find important, and will probably learn a few things along the way. Now, here's your host of Simply Stogies, James. Welcome to Simply Stogies. I'm your host, James. If you remember from last episode, I started discussing Cuban cigars. And with me for this episode is a very special guest, one of the Cuban experts over at simplystogies.club. We have Joe with us today via Skype. Joe, thank you so much for coming on. How are you tonight? I'm very well. Thank you very much for asking me to do this. I'm, I'm flattered to be asked. Uh, well, I'm very thankful that you said yes. Otherwise, uh, I may have been stuck with with someone who doesn't know nearly as much uh, as you do. So we're going to jump into this because there's a lot of information and there's a lot of misinformation out there about Cuban cigars. And so I want to make sure that we're giving uh, our listeners as much information as we can in this episode. So this episode might be a little bit longer than what you're used to. How long have you been smoking cigars, Joe? Uh, so I started smoking cigars uh, around the, the height of the cigar boom in the late 90s. So 90, 98, 99. So almost 20 years. Yeah, just about. Wow. Uh, so do you remember your first cigar that you ever had? I do. Uh, the first cigar I ever had was a fake Cuban. Uh, <laughs> the first cigar I ever had. <laughs> Uh, I took a spring break trip to Cancun and, uh, found my way into a retailer that was selling, uh, what were purported to be Cubans and picked up a couple of Monte Cristo number fours that were wrapped in cellophane, which of course I didn't know at the time was a problem <laughs> and, uh, brought them home and stored them in a Ziploc bag with a damp paper towel in the refrigerator and smoked those over the course of a couple of months. And I, I, I have no idea how, in retrospect, but somehow that was a uh, an enjoyable enough experience to to pique my interest and uh, set me off on my journey. I I think you're the first person that I've asked where their cigar journey began that answered with a fake Cuban. You know the the funny thing is uh, I I talked to a lot of guys and that's a surprisingly common story. I'm surprised how many people started off uh, with something that was either a fake Cuban or just something terrible and you would think that uh, that would dissuade them from ever continuing but somehow we uh we press on so 20 years ago there wasn't both there weren't bovita packs there weren't uh were there gel beads like what was the how did you you keep your your cigars uh you know at the correct uh humidity so that's that's a great question because yeah one of the things i think gets overlooked is that the tools that are available to us have progressed just light years in the last 20 years. And 20 years ago, even if you were storing your cigars properly with the best available tools, you know, basically what you had was a sponge in a plastic case with a magnet on the back that stuck to the lid of a, a humidor. Uh, and every, 
I don't know, six weeks, two months, something like that, uh, you'd have to pull it off and uh, wet the sponge with distilled water and then kind of monitor the humidity, hope you didn't get too much water in it, uh, hope it didn't dry out too fast. Uh, it was really a pain. And that was if you were doing it right. If you weren't doing it right, God knows what uh, what kind of concoction you'd end up with. That's That's crazy. I can't imagine not being able to just pop in a bovita pack and be done with it. Like it's literally set it and forget it 20 years ago. And that's probably when I smoked my first cigar was about 20 years ago. I, I didn't stay with it because I was, I was probably a Dutch master. And your fake Cuban <laughs> was right. probably better than that Dutch masters. Uh, so I didn't stick with it. But like, even then I had a friend who was with it and I, just what he had to go through is similar to what you did. I just can't, I can't imagine it. So you're right. It, it's, it's amazing that we've made that progression, but, we also seem to have entered this cycle uh, in society where cigars are kind of lumped in with cigarettes and other tobacco products. And there's a huge difference between the two. Since you've been smoking cigars for the last 20 years, have you seen that progression, how we've kind of the, the pendulum has swung now against us in such a heavy way? Uh, I've certainly seen it in a in the world of um, you know regulatory restrictions and, and smoking bans and things like that, I'm trying to think back in back in the late '90s. Um, you know the the cigar boom really changed uh, the popular perception of cigars, and uh, I don't know I don't know at that time if they were ever kind of you know lumped into the same category kind of in, in the popular imagination or, or among uh, cigar smokers. Uh, but it was, it was so wide open back then. You know, there were, there were cigar shops everywhere. Uh, you could still smoke in bars and, and there were still smoking sections in restaurants for God's sake. So I'm not sure. I don't recall there being any, any big distinction between them back then, but I think that's something that has really accelerated not linearly over the last 20 years, but has really accelerated kind of exponentially in the last maybe five to 10 years. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Uh, as a former uh, cigarette smoker, we, I saw that where you couldn't smoke in a bar, you couldn't smoke in a restaurant anymore. And so I quit smoking cigarettes and I thought, well, you know, I'll take up this hobby. This is a hobby. This is, there's, there's such a, a huge dichotomy between uh, cigarettes and, 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 and cigars, there's this huge difference between the two that certainly, you know, they're going to be perceived differently and they're not. They're yeah. just, I, and I, I don't know why society has, is pushing this so hard. Yeah. And that's, that's a good question. And the, the discouraging thing is it's not just in the United States. It's not just in any one particular country or one particular region. Uh, you go anywhere in the world and smoking is smoking is smoking. And it's either allowed or it's not, it's either restricted or it's not, but there's really no distinction uh, that I've seen anywhere in the world between uh, uh, cigars and other tobacco products. And, and while that's true in most countries, I, I would say the difference uh, that you'll see is in countries where tobacco is the main export, where yes. tobacco is the main moneymaker. Countries like Cuba, and I think that's why it's important uh, that we talk about that, because for countries like Cuba – this is where they make their money, right? Th right. This is all they, this is literally all they have as a, as a, as a good, as a commodity. Right. Right. And even in the United States, tobacco is still a sizable, uh, uh cash crop. It's still a, a, a commodity of, of some value. There's still a domestic tobacco industry in the United States. Uh, but you go to countries where there is no domestic tobacco production. Uh, they have no incentive whatsoever to, to tolerate any level of, of tobacco use. Yeah, it's just it's crazy. So we'll get we'll we'll get more into this as, as we go along. Do you remember the very uh the, the like the last cigar you smoked? Uh the last cigar I smoked was uh yeah, last night I had a uh say Grand Corona from 2006. Nice. I love QDOs. Like those are one mm -hmm. of my my favorite Cubans. So your first cigar was a fake Cuban. When did you start <laughs> seriously collecting real Cubans? Uh so it's it's interesting that, that it gets phrased that way, you know, collecting Cubans. I, I am steadfast in that I do not collect cigars. I smoke cigars. And there's a real temptation within uh, the cigar world generally 
to chase whatever's new and trendy and limited and, and to hoard it and, you know, uh, get as much as you can before you miss out on it. And so we all end up with, with collections kind of by default. Um, but I, I deliberately restrict how much storage I have because I don't want to collect cigars. They're not meant to be looked at. They're not meant to be admired or uh, you know, shown off in Instagram posts. Cigars are for smoking. So um, I've been I've been smoking cigars, uh, Cuban cigars specifically, uh, fairly routinely, uh, kind of in two phases. So uh, starting in the late 90s, I eventually did find my way to uh, reputable sources for legitimate Cuban cigars uh, and uh, smoked those pretty much exclusively for two or three years. But by 2000, 2001, somewhere in there, uh, the quality of Cuban cigars had, had declined so badly that I couldn't justify wasting my money on them anymore. And I was spending all kinds of ridiculous amounts of time chasing box codes uh, to try to get uh, boxes from the best factories, and everybody was doing that back then. Um, and it was just, it, it wasn't worth the hassle. Uh, it wasn't worth the lost money. It wasn't worth uh, buying a box and having 10 cigars out of a box of 25 either plugged or, or just unsmokable. So I, I gave up on Cuban cigars and smoked exclusively non-Cuban cigars for uh, a long time. And the quality returned back to an acceptable level in Cuban cigars probably by 2005, 2006. But I, you know, once bitten, twice shy, I, I was reluctant to, to give it another go. And it really wasn't until 2013 or 2014 uh, that I started buying and smoking Cuban cigars on a regular basis again. Do you remember the first Cuban that you ever smoked? Like the first legit Cuban where you went, oh, this is Cuban. And you noticed the difference and you were like, you were just hooked. Yeah. So that kind of happened in two phases for me. The first legitimate Cuban I smoked was uh, a box from a box of, of Partagas shorts. And I bought those at the time just because, you know, I was a broke college student. And, and back then you could get a box of shorts for like 87 bucks. Uh, and me and a friend of mine would split it. So for, you know, $40 and change, you'd get, you know, half a box of, of uh, uh, Cuban Minutos. And, uh, and those were great. I liked those just fine. But, you know, I also started uh, getting into uh, some of the early cigar forms and starting trading with guys. And the first Cuban cigar that that really, you know, blew the top of my head off was uh, a Punch Double Corona. That was the cigar that uh, I smoked that and had that, you know, had that white light experience. That was it. That's when I, uh, the, the switch flipped and I got why these were different and special. Let's talk about that a little bit. Why are they so special? What makes the Cuban cigar so iconic? There are cigar makers all over the world. Mm -hmm. uh, there were some in Jamaica. There are the, the Dominican Republic, Nicaragua, Honduras. Uh, there's even now you, you're finding leaves from uh, Peru, Brazil. Mm -hmm. So they're all over the place. The United States, like you, you mentioned earlier. So what is it about the Cuban cigar that makes it so iconic, synonymous with the word cigar so in my opinion and I, I really should preface everything i say with uh you know this being my opinion only and uh derived only from my narrow experience of it the in my opinion the the uniqueness of a cuban cigar uh kind of derives from the same the same source as a lot of other iconic products you know why is french wine so iconic why is italian leather so iconic uh, in some places, there's such a long and distinguished history of both craftsmanship and cultivation of raw materials that the products just can't be replicated anywhere else. Uh, other sources may be just as good, maybe even better, but they'll never be the same. You know, California wine can be remarkable on its own merits. Nicaraguan cigars can be remarkable on their own merits. They can be better, but they'll always be different. Uh, there, is, there will always be something unique uh, about a Cuban Puro just because of the, uh, the, the history and the tradition of cigar making in Cuba, I think. All right. So is, is it just all hype? Is the Cuban cigar just hype? Or is there something really there that sets it apart 
from the rest of the world's cigars. So I'm I'm curious about the term hype because when I think of hype, I think of you know the kind of uh, the uh, the marketing tactics uh, that you see most often in the non-Cuban cigar world. You know, like whatever the hell Kyle Jealous is doing at Warp, whatever Andre Farkas <laughs> is doing at BI, the, the all limited all the time, you know, the goofy marketing that comes out of Ezra Zion, you know, these kinds of you know, silly marketing tactics that are, that are uh, designed just to move product. And Habanos, Habanos SA, the, the marketing distribution arm of Taba Cuba, yeah, they do some of that. They have regional programs and uh, Edición Limitada programs to, to manufacture uh, some some scarcity and, and to create some hype in the market. But I think what people, at least in the U.S., mean when they talk about hype is just uh, a kind of different uh, perspective or uh, a different set of common opinions about uh, Cuban cigars that is born out of nothing more than their limited availability to us in this market. And that's really just a product of circumstances. And and I don't think it has anything whatsoever to do with the, the cigars themselves or anything that the manufacturers or distributors of, of Cuban cigars are doing on purpose. No, I, I would agree with that. I think that when we say hype here in the U.S., especially concerning Cuban cigars, a lot of people say it's just because we can't get them. It's just because it's, you know, illegal or taboo or whatever, however you want to label it. There's there's a label that comes with a Cuban cigar that we're just not supposed to have it. It's hands off. It's the forbidden fruit. Right. And so is it is it that just that mentality that when we do finally get our hands on one that we're like, oh, this is just so good. Is it that for, or is there seriously something that sets it apart from uh, Nicaraguan or even Dominican uh, tobacco, which I think is probably a lot closer to Cuban tobacco than than Nicaraguan tobacco. So I think there is something substantively different about it. The characteristics of of a, a Cuban puro are unique. Uh, they just they can't be replicated elsewhere. And whatever those characteristics are, you know the 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 flavors, the aromas. If that suits you as a cigar smoker, then those may well be worth the 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 feeling of them, them being difficult to get or something like that. But I'll say this, you know, when Cuban cigars became accessible to me, and yeah, you know, they were they were as easy to get as anything else. That didn't for me diminish any of the enjoyment of smoking them. Yeah, you know, if you if you're smoking. Cuban cigars for any length of time, the the novelty of being able to, to get them is going to wear off. And if you're only interested in them for the novelty, then you're probably not really appreciating them for what they are. And in that case, for you know, that individual smoker, then they may be nothing more than hype. It may be nothing more than the thrill of the chase or the, the fun of scoring something uh, that other people can't. And and then it's just hype. But if you are smoking Cuban cigars and enjoying them for what they are, if you're enjoying the substance of, of what the cigar actually is and continuing to enjoy that, uh, regardless of whether they're readily available or not, then I don't think hype really um, factors into it. Okay. So there is something substantially different between Cubans and and the rest of the world's tobacco and will whether or not like it taste is subjective, right? Right. So one man's hype is another man's not hype. <laughs> this is another right. man's, you know, this is what I want to smoke every day. This is this is the best out there. So for most people it comes down to flavor. So why is the flavor so unique to Cubans? I honestly think you would have to be a fairly sophisticated agronomist to answer that question uh, in a meaningful way. The only thing I can chalk it up to is just terroir, you know. And I go back to the the wine example. You know, why is proper champagne uh, different and distinct from California white sparkling wine? And I, I really don't know the details uh, or the all of the complexity that goes into that, I can only conclude for myself that 
there's something unique about the the growing conditions in Cuba that is not replicable in you know Honduras, Nicaragua, the Dominican Republic, Mexico, Indonesia, Peru, any of the other countries that are that are producing um, cigars or cigar leaf. I think you're spot on because they've taken the seeds, these Cuban mm-hmm. seeds, and they've tried to replicate it elsewhere, and it's just not the same. And one thing, and this is this is really kind of a, a stretch into the realm of conjecture for me. One of the things that I wonder about sometimes is, you know, you mentioned that you know the Cuban seeds have been taken all over Central America and grown in every imaginable cigar producing country. And they're never exactly the same as as uh, the seeds that produce plants in Cuba. And one of the things I wonder about is, you know, the impact of the different farming methods uh, that are available in in different countries. Because, you know, you read about the the modern farming methods uh, that are employed in Nicaragua and the Dominican Republic, and those are sophisticated. They are mechanized. They are well-organized and well-run. The plants are, are treated. They're genetically modified and hybridized to resist mold, to increase yield. And then you go to Cuba, and the farming methods are just vastly different. I mean, the farming methods there basically haven't changed since, I don't know, the, the end of the 19th century. I mean, they're still uh, plowing their fields with, uh, with wooden carts pulled by mules. Uh, they're still fertilizing their fields with the, the leftover fish parts from the fishing industry. It's, it's a very antiquated kind of farming there. And, you know, they do certainly do some hybridization of, of their seeds and their strains uh, to try to achieve disease resistance, uh, to try to achieve increased yields. But they really do not have access to any of the the really modern farming methods that I presume are common in, in other countries. That that begs the question. If Cuba, if the embargo was to be lifted on Cuba and Cuba was able to, you know, make more money or, or the regime changed from a communist regime to a, uh, a capitalist regime, uh, so to speak, uh, democracy reigned true in Cuba. Would, and they were able to to pull their uh, their their farming into the 21st century. Would that make a difference in how the tobacco tastes, or would it make a marked difference? That's a, that's a great question, and you know I'll preface this by saying that you know if those changes were to materialize, it would undoubtedly be a, a wonderful improvement for the Cuban people, which I think is the most important consideration. But, you know, for my narrow self-interest as a cigar smoker, I think that opening up Cuba to world markets, I mean, really just kicking open the doors, uh, I, I can't help but think that that would completely ruin Cuban cigars as they currently exist. Because the, the farming methods, I, I think, would, would certainly modernize. And I don't know if that would be an improvement or not. Uh, it might be better. It might be worse. It would certainly be different. Uh, so, you know, Cuban tobacco, whatever it is right now, uh, would no longer continue to be what it is. It would, it would become something different. And I think the entire, um, the entire manufacturing process downstream of farming would become so vastly different that on the, on the consumer end for, for Cuban cigars, I, I can't help but think that they would become something so dramatically different that they would no longer be the thing that I've come to enjoy over the last 20 years. Well, let's, let's focus on that for just, for just a minute, because even you, you have said that the, the standard of Cuban cigars uh, at some point in the past was so terrible that you stopped smoking them. <laughs> right. Yes. It's still not fantastic. <laughs> no, it is absolutely <laughs> not. It is acceptable at this point. Fantastic, right? Like it it's not. tolerable. Yeah, right. like we can we can pick one up and it's plugged. And it's like uh, fine. I can. It's they're easy enough to get and cheap right. enough to get right. for the most part. Where you can just toss it, pick up another one, and hope that it's much better. And nine times out of ten, uh, let me rephrase. Maybe six times out of ten, uh, <laughs> it's better. And so, you know, and if it's not, you kind of muddle through because you don't want to toss two. 
So taste aside, the modernization of Cuban tobacco uh, under a different uh, uh, under a different government system in Cuba would not only would it help the people, it would help we would hope uh, the the quality control that comes out of Cuban cigars. Right. Yes, right. Yeah, I would I would I would agree with that. So is the trade off worth it then? If if they were able to come to a uh, up into the twenty first century, if the markets were opened. Uh, for them, if there was some sort of regime change or a shift uh, to a less communist and oppressive regime to a more democratic uh, regime, the trade-off, first and foremost, I think, like you said, would be more than acceptable because it's it, it's going to help the people of Cuba first and foremost. But is it is the trade-off worth it uh, when it comes to Cubans as far as, uh, yeah, I'm willing to maybe see how the taste evolves with 21st century farming techniques and equipment, uh, as long as I can actually smoke the damn things every time <laughs> I pick one up. You know, I'll, my opinion has always been this. The day the embargo ends, uh, I will stop buying Cuban cigars. And I'd say that because uh, Habanos and Taba Cuba do not have a great track record in this regard. And this is why I stopped smoking Cuban cigars uh, back in 2001. You know, the cigar boom happened. The global demand for uh, cigars generally uh, just skyrocketed far beyond what anyone could produce. Tabacuba went from producing about 60 million cigars a year to producing somewhere in the neighborhood of 170 million cigars a year. They cannot grow enough tobacco to roll that many cigars. So... They were growing substandard tobacco to begin with. They didn't have enough curing barns, so it wasn't aged or fermented properly. Uh, they didn't have enough rollers to, to make them into the finished product, so they were badly rolled and, uh, and just full of plugs and all kinds of other construction problems. And if the embargo were to end and the entire U.S. cigar market were open to Cuba, uh, I've read articles where officials inside uh, Habanos SA have, have claimed reasonably, I think, that if the market were open, they could capture 40% of the U.S. domestic market pretty quickly and pretty easily. And 40% of the U.S. market would, would completely overwhelm both their farming capacity and their production capacity. I don't think, uh, and I don't know this uh, with any certainty, but just based on their track record, uh, I would not expect there to be any modern farming methods or any modern tools that they could employ that would allow them to produce the same quality tobacco at that huge volume that they do now. So you say it's a huge volume, but every like so one of the issues with with Cubans that I discussed in in the last episode is they need time to age because they're they're in such high demand worldwide. And there's just not enough supply for the most part of Cuban tobacco that they're not properly aged and they are shipped out young. And there's nothing worse than a young Cuban. Right. Because right. it's super harsh and, and, and it's not done with the fermentation process. And so you get there's it's just it's not a pleasant experience. If the market were to open. Uh, the U.S. market well, were to open to Cuban cigars and with it, the market became you know, like they said, probably easily 40% because people are like, oh, we can get Cubans now and it's not illegal and it's much easier. They're at my, my local B&M. What does that do to, the, to, their, to their stock, to their inventory? Because if they are barely keeping up with worldwide demand now, if the, if the U.S. market were to ever open to them, they wouldn't be able to keep up. Would they were already past the point of no return where – with non-Cuban uh, cigars, they're able to age them properly because right. there is an abundance of the tobacco. Right. There's not a problem. And even when there is a, a shortage due to weather conditions, due to uh, disease, due to whatever, uh, they have some in storage that they're able to go to. All of the Cuban storage, all the pre-embargo Cuban storage is gone. It's all been used up. So they don't have any. So are we past the point of no return now where – if, if, if that does happen and they are able to come to the United States, that it's just not going to be a good product to begin with. That's what I would expect. I would expect it not to be a good product to begin with. And, and what I would expect to happen is, uh, you're exactly right. There's, 
there are no curing barns full of several years worth of inventory in in Cuba uh, the way there is in you know, Nicaragua and, and the Dominican Republic. So what I would expect to happen is if the U.S. market opened up, they would they would do exactly what they did in 98, 99, and 2000. They would start planting tobacco where it's never grown before. Uh, they would start uh, shortchanging uh, the curing process. They would eliminate the fermentation process. They'd be, you know, having just plucking people off the street to roll the things and and just rushing them out the door. And that's why I say I, I would stop buying at that point because I would expect that to be the outcome. There is a way, there is an alternative to that. And the alternative would be to, to ramp up supply uh, gradually over a period of years and, you know, maybe five years after the market opened up, you know, you could build up a stock of tobacco that was properly cured and properly aged. Uh, and, you know, you'd spend the time to train the rollers and you could send a good product out the door. And then maybe 10 years down the line, you could do some real uh, supply chain management, some real inventory management. But Habanos essay just does not have a track record of, of doing that or even having any interest in exploring that. They are interested in sending as many units out the door uh, as they can. This is typically where I would make some offhand remark about communist regimes, but I will <laughs> try my best not to do so. Uh, for you, buying Cuban cigars, how like how do you wrestle with that? How do you how do you uh, in your in your mind uh, come to grips with? the moral and ethical implications of supporting a communist regime? That's, that's a great question. And that's something that I know cigar smokers talk about a lot and everybody kind of has their own, their own reckoning with that. The way I look at it is this, um, you have an iPhone, don't you, James? I do. So I'm trying to, I'm blanking on the year. I think this was 2015. Maybe, uh, there was a paper published out of, uh, Ivy university on, uh, Ontario, Canada, and a couple of researchers were were just writing a, a case study, a business case study on Apple's supply chain. And uh, one of the major suppliers for Apple is a company called Foxconn. Foxconn is one of the largest electronics makers in the world. They have a huge presence in mainland China, and they make a lot of the components for uh, Apple products. Foxconn's uh, labor practices would have to improve dramatically to be described as disgusting and revolting. They recruit people from poor rural areas who are literally starving. They charge them for the privilege of applying to be considered for a job at the factory. For those fortunate few who are selected for jobs at the factory are forced to live at the factory uh, so that they can be pulled out of the bed uh, at all hours of the day or night. Anytime Apple decides that they, they need to meet uh, an order quota. And the, the working conditions are so brutal that one of Foxconn's big problems is that workers periodically attempt to escape the situation by going up to the roof of the building and jumping off to kill themselves. Foxconn's response to this wow. was not to address any of the labor conditions. Their response to this was to install nets around the perimeter of the building. To catch the employees. They're saving lives. Yeah. They're saving lives, Joe. They're, they're really doing God's work. That's right. <laughs> and, you know, this is, this is just one, and I don't say that any of this to pick on Apple uh, or to pick on any one company, but just to make the point that for every single one of us, you know, our garages, our living rooms, our kitchens are packed wall to wall, floor to ceiling with products that are made in just abhorrent conditions by uh, exploited workers who have no alternatives in countries that allow or encourage those kinds of labor practices, all kinds of um, unsavory regimes. So, you know, it's possible that this is all just an elaborate justification for me to enjoy smoking cigars. But I think that, you know, if you scratch at the surface, even a little bit, of most of the consumer products that we take for granted in the United States, not very many of them come from circumstances or come from places uh, that we would really feel good about. No, I would, I would absolutely agree with that. And I think to some extent giving, uh, you know, 
the communist, uh, uh, the the party in control in Cuba, giving them money through buying cigars. It keeps people in work, right? It keeps people, uh, it keeps them having a job in Cuba. It gives them something, right? I mean, it may not be much. It's certainly not much. I, I, I believe I've read that there's a, a black market in Cuba for toilet paper because it's just not something that that's easily uh, available. Yeah. The, um, there's a, a an enormous shortage of all kinds of, of basic goods in in Cuba, and that, that ranges from um, you know toiletries and hygiene products to to medicines. With the tightening restrictions and the clampdown on foreign investment over the last six months, uh, there have been food shortages. But for the most part, in, in my experience, in my my vast experience of having spent ten days in Cuba once, uh, you know. The buildings are crumbling. There are food shortages. There are all these endemic problems that you would expect in in that kind of uh, government and that kind of economy. But for the most part, there is universal housing and education and healthcare, despite the shortages. So, you know, it's it's not good, and I wouldn't defend it. Uh, and it's it's not something that that I think anyone feels good about uh, supporting uh, monetarily, but it's, it's definitely not the worst thing I've ever seen. I, I would agree. And I think, I, I believe I said this last episode, I believe we do more harm than good with this embargo and with the tightening of restrictions. These, these people in Cuba don't have a lot. And so to take away any type of um, tourism, any type of of entertainment that they can that they can provide. I mean, that's a commodity as well. Cuba used to be the hip happening place in the in the uh, before the uh, uh, communist party took over, right? And so and so, uh, yeah. I think we do more harm than good in a global economy. It's just it's time to uh, open up the doors and, and help them out. And you know what? I watch. I, I, this isn't in the notes. This isn't anything that you and I uh, had, had discussed beforehand. I watched the movie uh, Handmade about premium uh, cigars here in the United States. Have you watched that movie yet? No, I haven't seen that yet. They were not very kind to Cuban cigars. <laughs> and I understand that from a business perspective. I mean, when you right. talk about Padrones that are, you know, made in Nicaragua, right? Nicaragua is not known for being the most stable of countries. The Dominican right. Republic is not known for uh, being the most stable and the most, you know, the richest country in the world. But these these companies that go in there, uh, specifically Davidoff and Padron, they go in there and they give back to the community and they give they're actually contributing to the economies of these countries. And they're taking care of the farmers they are taking care of the rollers, they're taking care of some of the people there, uh, even so much so that uh Arturo Fuente and J.C. Newman, uh, they do uh, a lot of stuff uh, with uh, with schools and whatnot down there. I mean, so if you were to open up the Cuban market, how would that affect uh, non-Cubans, uh, non-Cuban cigar makers right now? Because that would open up the Cuban leaf to be available in presumably if the FDA doesn't get their way, uh, presumably uh, to implement cuban tobacco in some of the blends they have now yeah that is that's an interesting kind of thought experiment you know what would happen if uh kind of all of the available tobacco inventory uh kind of got intermingled and all of the the best blenders had access to to all of it and could pick and choose and you know i i really don't know what would become of that i don't um I don't suspect that Cuban manufacturers, even under a private system, uh, even under a market-based system, I'm not sure that they would be inclined to uh, to make their inventory available to to manufacturers outside of Cuba. Not even for a, a large sum of money. Some of these companies, Davidoff, Padron, they have a lot of money that they can pump into uh, these farms in Cuba. You don't think that some of these folks would be, yes, please give me all the monies. 
It's possible. I, so that, this is what I think is possible. You know, the, along the same lines of, yeah, you know, I mentioned before, if, if the markets were open, if the embargo ended, you know, the, the, the Cuban cigar monopoly or whatever form it took after that, they, were, they would do whatever they could for whatever cash influx they could get right away. That being their, their motive, uh, yeah, I could see someone making them a, 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 an offer that uh, would persuade them to, to sell their, their raw materials. But, I, but that would be a, a, a terrible decision. And I say that not because of any, any particular knowledge or experience um, of Cuban cigars or, or Cuba generally, but just you know, look at through, I'm going to put on my MBA hat here, look at through a business perspective, uh, I, I can't think of any industry where a, a supplier who is just a cog in someone else's supply chain doesn't want, doesn't have an aspiration to move up the supply chain and eventually be in a position to offer a finished product to, to the consumer market. Uh, you see that in clothing. You see that in electronics. A lot of, of new products that, that come to market in those industries are, are made by and offered by companies uh, that used to be suppliers to someone else. So if the Cubans were going to just take their, their agricultural product, their raw agricultural commodity, and sell it to someone else, whoever they were selling it to would have to buy out all of the value all the way up the supply chain. Uh, because the, there's so much uh, margin to be captured at each successive step of the supply chain, up to and including uh, when you put a finished product in a box and ship it to a, a distributor, they would have to be such a rich offer that they would have to buy out all of that value to make it even equal to the revenues that would be available if they were making a finished product themselves. And none of that even takes into consideration the fact that uh, if they did sell their their tobacco crop uh, outside of the country and, and let it get blended with Nicaraguan tobacco and Dominican tobacco and, and whatever else, and, you know, that would effectively ruin what differentiates them in the marketplace. Uh, and I could see them doing it just uh, as a cash grab, but uh, I can't, I can't imagine that being a good decision. I understood three words you just said. <laughs> <laughs> no, that makes that 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 makes complete sense. But I, unfortunately, I think money talks, and I think we would see that in at least one or two instances, especially with some of the the larger cigar manufacturers. Yeah, and that could that could well be. Let's talk. Let's talk how we get Cuban cigars here in the United States, because I want to be very clear: it is illegal for a <laughs> U.S. citizen inside the United States to purchase Cuban cigars while inside the United States. If you are, uh, if you are overseas, if you are in Canada, if you are in Mexico, if you are in wherever and not in the United States, you can purchase Cuban cigars and you can even bring back a, a fair amount. I believe now, I think it's again, don't quote me. I believe I said this last episode and I didn't look it up because honestly, I'm not traveling outside of the United States anytime soon. So I don't care, but I think it's, like $800 worth of Cubans or at so least my understanding of it is that that's the, the correct number. My understanding of it is that uh, you are allowed to bring back on your person, whatever quantity you can convince the customs agent <laughs> is for your personal <laughs> consumption. So whatever that is and however good a, a, an explainer you are of how many cigars you smoke, uh, I think uh, is, is what governs that. The eight hundred dollar value, my understanding is anything above eight hundred dollars, then you have to pay a four percent duty on. There you go. So that's probably a better understanding than mine. But if you're bringing back three thousand cigars, I mean, this is going to last me the rest of my life, sir. <laughs> right. I'm not, I don't want to sell these. I want to smoke all of these before I die. That's what I'd like to do. And they need to sit for at least two years because Cuba. Right, you can you can explain to the customs agent the whole aging process and how you're yeah make him listen to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you get these then? How do we procure them? Because if they're caught by customs, 
There is supposed to be a fine, is there not? There is supposed to be a fine. I am only aware of one single instance where any entity, any individual or uh, corporation, was ever actually levied a fine for uh, violating the the Treasury Department restrictions on uh, buying Cuban goods. And that was uh, Red Bull. The company Red Bull was was fined because they put on some event in Cuba in in violation of the, the embargo. Uh, but I'm not aware of any individual ever actually receiving a fine. N- normally what happens is you get a, a nice polite letter in the mail saying you're not getting these things. <laughs> like, you know, that's, that's basically the gist of the letter is custom send you a letter <laughs> that says, yeah, sorry, we caught these. Like you're not getting them. Thanks for playing our game. We've got lovely door prizes for you. Yes. What you get is a letter uh, inviting you to respond to that letter and uh, uh, claim those goods uh, and then to open a case with U.S. Customs, which, uh, of course, would be uh, a, a curious decision if someone were there to take that rep. <laughs> it would be a terrible uh, so idea. So, yes, you, you, you get a letter uh, that says what it says and then you ignore the letter. Yes. Just ignore the letter and move on with your life. So yes. with all of the fakes that are that are out there, I mean – I'm sure I've seen, I mean, I see fakes all the time on, on the, uh, subreddit, the, the cigar subreddit. I see fakes all the time, uh, in, in just everywhere. It's like Facebook, people are posting them in, in, in simply stogies that club. So how do we find the legitimate, the real Cuban cigars? Because as I said last week, the only way to be a hundred percent sure that you're buying from someone who, who is not selling a fake is to buy it directly from communist Cuba. You know, even then, it's it's not 100% guaranteed. I, I've heard, um, and I've never experienced this myself, but I've heard other people claim that there are certain uh, Casa de Labano uh, stores in Havana uh, that are suspected to be selling fakes. Anytime you go into a, a, a place in Havana and you try to buy a box and they'll sell you the sticks but not the box, uh, that's that's kind of a red flag, and, and people question that, and they question whether or not what goes back into that box afterward is is legitimate. And there are there are other Casa de Labanos, which uh, for those who don't know are are the uh, official authorized uh, retailers globally who are are part of the distribution network uh, for for Habanos. Um, but there are there are different Casa de Labanos around the world that um, that I've heard. Uh, I've heard people being suspicious of. So I, I suppose that it's possible to find fakes literally anywhere. How do you spot them? How do you know? How do you find a trusted, uh, I call them resellers, because the, you're not buying it firsthand. This is off a secondary market, off the, I don't want to call it the black market, more of a gray market. So how, how do you do that? What's the easiest way to find a reputable reseller? So my, I'll, I'll, I'll say this first off, I, I think it's, it's interesting that, that you mentioned seeing fakes on, uh, on Reddit and on Facebook and, and on other forums. I, I mean, every once in a while I'll see something, someone post something and, and anytime you see a post where the title of the post is, uh, are these legit? The answer is no. Uh, <laughs> right. But those are, <laughs> those are fairly infrequent. Um, I actually don't see that many fakes, and I'll tell you this: if someone like right now today challenged me to go find a, a fake or a counterfeit Cuban cigar, I honestly wouldn't know where to go. Uh, I, I I know they're everywhere, but I I wouldn't know. Uh, I wouldn't know where to go. Uh, when it comes to you know, if if someone's kind of just beginning to to explore this. And they're curious about how how to distinguish real from fake. My my suggestion would be to forget about the cigars themselves entirely, because everybody who gets cigars from some dubious source ends up twisting themselves in knots, scrutinizing the bands. Oh, is the shade of brown right? Uh, is the printing correct? Are the the dots lined up? And they're taking you know calipers and measuring the distance between dots and getting out their black lights and inspecting holograms and checking serial numbers. I would say don't bother. 
Don't bother with any of that. Find a reputable source or a, a, a series of reputable sources. They're not that hard to find. Uh, it requires a little bit of, of research, a little bit of conversation with with other with other cigar smokers. Um, and once you find uh, a trusted source, buy exclusively from sources you trust, and then don't ever give authenticity a second thought. I think people get get roped into to falling for for tactics where they end up with with cigars that they're not sure of because they they fell for a story. If you're buying cigars and the cigars come with a story, they're fake. Authentic cigars are just like buying any other retail product. You know, there's a storefront, there's a checkout process. If if the the cigars you're considering come with a tail, don't bother. There you go. That's uh those are words to live by. But I think where a lot of people kind of get tripped up is they hear the horror stories, right? They hear the uh we we opened up a, a faux Heba, uh one of these <laughs> fake Cubans and it was yes. full of fingernails, uh, you know, <laughs> rat turds and, and, and human hair. And, right, the, the oh, and by, sweepings. <laughs> right, exactly. Or by the way, short filler too. So, right, right. I mean, like short filler is like the the least offensive of all all of the things that they claim to have found inside of them. And so, right, people they hear these things, and as a, a new cigar smoker, I was worried about that when I first the first time I I was able to get my hands on Cubans. I'll word it that way in case customs officials are listening. <laughs> Uh, the first time I was able to get my hands on Cubans, I was a little concerned until again, I went to a brother, the leaf that I trusted and said, Hey, what do you think? And he was like, yeah, no, those are fine. Just shut up, shut up and smoke. them." <laughs> so you're right. But as a new cigar smoker, somebody who's, who was starting on their, their Cuban cigar journey. And it is a, it's a fantastic journey full of wonderful products from a fantastic Island in a terrible situation. Should you be worried about fingernails, human hair, and rat turds in your in your fohiba? Yeah. So one of the things I've noticed is that a lot of people, when they start out um, smoking cigars, whether they're Cuban or non-Cuban, I've noticed that a lot of people want to skip ahead to the end right away. Uh, as soon as they start, they want to know all the best sources. They want to know uh, which Marcas and Vitolas are going to be their favorites. They want to know... They want to start from the very start with, like, you know, a, a diverse uh, inventory of, of aged cigars. And I think that that kind of fuels what you're talking about, where they they want to, there's a uh, a temptation to skip the, the part of the journey where you just have to spend some time, uh, where, you know, you don't just Google Cuban cigars online and then start buying stuff. It really is necessary to spend some time doing exactly what you described, you know, having an actual interaction, having an actual conversation with other people who are, who are on the same journey, who are a little farther down the road than you are, uh, who've already made some of the mistakes that are, that are in front of you and learning from those mistakes. Uh, I think it's, I think there's a, a haste, uh, a rush uh, that, it causes people to to find illegitimate sources or to to wander into some of those horror stories where you find those those awful things. The the time for avoiding that isn't when you get that box of fohibas in your house and then you've got to worry about what's inside. Uh, the time to head off that mistake is is before you ever consider that purchase. I I would agree. Do a little bit of research. It's not the destination. It's the journey, especially with cigars. It's the journey. Uh, I, I've said before on the show, and I, I learned this from another good brother of the leaf, is you have to burn to learn. That's the yeah, only, absolutely. That's the only way you're gonna you're gonna know what it is you like, what it is you don't like. And trust me, I've smoked right. a lot that I just <laughs> don't like. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And and one other thing I'll add uh, on this point is 
you know, obviously there's all kinds of, of disgusting and worrisome things in in fake or, or counterfeit Cuban cigars. But, you know, ask someone who's been around a while things that they've found in legitimate, genuine <laughs> Cuban cigars. And there's it's just good to keep an eye out. Yes, absolutely. I have seen and heard some of those horror stories as well. So far for me on my journey, the, the, the worst thing I found in a non-Cuban is a giant stem. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Stems are common. Uh, I've found threads that have come off the ribbons that they use to bundle them that are rolled into the leaf. <laughs> I've found uh, scraps of paper, uh, just all kinds of, of oddball things. Human hairs, uh, unfortunately, these are handmade products. That happens. Right. So there's there's a couple of things real quick that I want to touch on because I think they're important and, and, and it's my fault because I kind of jumped around and it was a great conversation that we had, Joe. But how long should you age a Cuban cigar and is there a, a point of diminishing returns on aging them? So my personal rule of thumb, and I'll try to keep this short, my personal rule of thumb is I generally won't touch anything for two years uh, from the time I get it. I, I think Two years is how long it, it was supposed to have sat in a curing room before it was shipped and didn't. So that's the the, the amount of time that I, I leave it uh, in my humidor to rest. The the part about diminishing returns, I absolutely think that that is true. I think that's a common experience that, that um, most uh, Cuban cigar smokers experience. It's absolutely possible to overage a cigar. And one of the interesting things is, you know, the strains of tobacco that are being used in Cuba right now, there's kind of an emerging consensus that, that those peak uh, somewhere between five and eight years. And nobody really knows how these current strains are going to stand up for 20 years or 25 years. You know, the, the strains that they were using in the late 90s and, you know, 95, 96, 97, those had legs for decades. You know, you can light up a a cigar, a Cuban cigar from uh, 1996, and it's still rich and full-bodied and still has lots of life left in it. I, I'm not convinced that if you bought some Cuban cigars today and opened it 25 years from now, that it wouldn't be well past its prime. I'll be dead in 25 years, so I don't have to worry about that, Joe. But thank <laughs> you so much for reminding me that I have uh, a mortality that is quickly coming up. Uh, what's your favorite Cuban cigar? Hands down, bar none, if you had to smoke one cigar for the rest of your life and it had to come from the island of Cuba, what would it be? The the truth answer to that is the, the Cuadrose Imperiales, uh, which were discontinued in 2014, I think, 2015. And I mean, those those just click with my palate. I those are, are are everything that I look for in a cigar. I could smoke those until until doomsday and, and be perfectly happy. From current production, um, the Punch Double Corona is uh, is one that's still being made and is still fantastic. And is you know the first Cuban cigar that I fell in love with uh, back in in the late nineties. So that's one that uh, that I've I've probably got a lifetime supply of Punch uh, Double Coronas right now. <laughs> It's probably a good thing to have, especially if if uh, the communist regime ever falls or we open up our uh, our our markets to Cuban cigars. You should probably. I have... will confess there's 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 probably a little bit of future proofing that went into my purchasing decisions <laughs> for the uh, punch double coronas. Do you think we'll see that? Do you think in our lifetime that we'll see that? Maybe not my lifetime, but yours, Joe. Will you see this in your lifetime? I I'm optimistic that we will. I mean. I, I I don't know. I, I would like to think that we will, but if you if you put that same question to someone you know forty years ago who was middle aged then, uh, they probably would have been optimistic that that things would have changed by now. You know, they probably would have said as soon as Fidel Castro passed away, uh, things will change. Uh, as soon as you know the, the Castros generally are out of power, things will change. There seems to be always. Uh, you know, the next thing around the corner, the goalpost seems to be always moving. So. I would like to think that we'll see the end of it, but but I just don't know. Neither do I. What I do know is that I'm very thankful, Joe, that you took the time to come on the show, talk to us about your your journey, 
tell the listener a little bit about Cuban cigars and share your knowledge. I very much appreciate it. Joe, you are a great brother of the leaf. Thank you for coming on the podcast and, and dropping some Cuban knowledge on everyone. Uh, it's It's been an absolute pleasure, James. I, I really appreciate you inviting me on. It's been a lot of fun. And um, I I hope that uh, it's, it's helpful to the listeners. Uh, it was absolutely helpful for me, so I certainly appreciate it. Uh, <laughs> join us next episode uh, where I'll be talking about something. I'm not sure what, but I can promise you it will be Simply Stogies. Until then, stay smoky, friends. Thank you for listening to Simply Stogies. Please rate and review Simply Stogies on iTunes. You can follow James on his cigar journey on Instagram at Simply Stogies Podcast, all one word, and on Twitter at the Twitter handle at Simply Stogies. <laughs>